Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8, verses, we're going to read from verses 18 through 27 here as we begin Matthew 8, 18 to 27. Uh, because it's move-in day next Saturday, we're looking forward to a good day there. And uh, then more things will happen. We will be uh, worshiping here, Lord willing, for uh, this Sunday, of course, and then the next two Sundays. And then starting the first Sunday in November, which I think is November 1st, we are going to meet for worship in the... Um, Fellowship Hall, and we'll be in the Fellowship Hall for two or three weeks while this room is being transformed. So you have a couple more weeks to squeeze yourself into the pews, and then after that, they will be um, relocated. So um, anyway, and, and even as we finish, there will be things that will take place uh, that will continue to come, more signage will continue to come, and there's furniture that will continue to come, so uh, more decorations that will continue to come. The building will be usable, but uh, still more things will be coming in as time uh, goes by. But uh, we're, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, it's not a train, so that's good. Um, Matthew 8, verse 18. Matthew 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. We believe that the risen Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of his Father. We believe the one who spoke this way to the winds and the waves has been given all authority by his Father and is worthy of all of our allegiance. In fact, the allegiance of every single person in every nation on the planet. We believe that about the exalted Lord Jesus and at the same time, we are inconsistent and lazy and unfaithful, and joyless, and lukewarm, a lot more than we would ever want to be. He rose from the dead, and sometimes we're just bored. I have a, a professor, a church history professor, he was a great teacher, but uh, every now and then during the semester he would say, we are walking through church history like an inebriated turtle time he's spent with alcoholic turtles, and I don't know how many studies have been done of what happens if you give too many drinks to a turtle, but you understand what the image is like, right? How does an inebriated turtle move? Slowly. 
And that's the way some of us follow Jesus. Maybe not you, maybe not you, but I have read the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to some of the churches that he planted, and he addressed some of the issues that they were having, and those churches seem to have their fair share of inebriated turtle Christians in them. I'm not defending it as a way of following Jesus, and I'm not advocating for it or excusing it, but this is just sometimes the way my spiritual life works. I've been a Christian for about four decades. I should be much holier than I am. Jesus is a much better master than I am servant. He's the sure and steady anchor, and I am wavering and faithless and faulty. And because of that, we need reminders every now and then of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's a theme in the passage that I just read. You can tell by the number of times that the apostle here, Matthew, uses the word disciple and how often he uses the word follow in just these, these short verses. So uh, in verse 19, somebody comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then another disciple comes in verse 21 and verse 22. Follow me, Jesus says. And verse 23, they get into the boat and his disciples followed him. This is all about people following Jesus. And I need, uh, like an alarm, this reminder to wake up and get moving in the right direction. And that's what Matthew is doing here. It's as if he is taking you by the shoulders and saying, I have children. I have sometimes done this, right? Are you paying attention? Okay. Do you, do you hear what I'm asking you to do? Sometimes you go like this. Look at me. Right? Look at me and tell, I'm going to tell you what to do and I want you to do it. So here's the Apostle Matthew coming in close and saying, Here, remember, you who follow Jesus, this is, this is it. So I want to show you from the text these necessary elements that are following in Jesus. I think they're going to emerge from the text. I want to show you three of them. And then I want to also show you what it takes to embody these things that Jesus calls us to do, these elements. Now, just a word about, again, a reminder of where we are in the book of Matthew before we move on. We believe that this book here is God's word. It is the authoritative word for us. And we systematically move through books of the Bible because we want to listen to every word that God has for us. So now we're systematically moving through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in this section that starts in chapter 4, verse 23, and ends in chapter 9, verse 35. There's identical bookends. Those verses are virtually identical. And uh, in those uh, bookend verses, the, Matthew emphasizes what Jesus was doing. He was teaching and healing, teaching and healing. And we're talking about Jesus' teaching, and we're talking about his healing work. And in chapters 8 through 9, 8 and 9, there's, um, these healing miracles are kind of divided. There's three healing miracles. We talked about the first three last week. Then a word or two about discipleship. Then three more healing miracles. Then a word or two about discipleship. And then three more miracles, actually three more plus one miracle in that third section. And on all the way through from chapter 4 to chapter 9, the emphasis is on Jesus' authority. He teaches as one who has authority, and he heals with authority that you can't believe. Right? And uh, now here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this first discipleship lesson and the first miracle in that second set, and then Lord willing, next week we'll talk about the second miracles in the second set. Whew, 
Matthew is very ordered. He was, what, a text collector. He knows how to work an Excel spreadsheet, and his gospel reads like it. Now, let's talk about these elements of following Jesus, these three of them. And the first one that I want to talk about is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Here's a reminder about sacrifice. Some of you who have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, this word doesn't surprise you at all. You've seen it and heard it multiple times. But I want to suggest to you that it should surprise you a little bit more than it does. In particular, because it surprised this first man that Jesus had a conversation with. In verses 18 through 22, there's a discussion, or there's two discussions recorded for us, uh, two conversations between Jesus and applicant disciples. The first one is over-eager, and the second one is under-eager. The first one doesn't really understand what Jesus is asking, and he over-promises. And the second one seems to understand what Jesus is asking, but he under-delivers. Frederick Bruner, I like how he says this, he describes the first one as the hasty scholar and the second one as the hesitant son. That's good definitions right there, and it's alliteratively beautiful. The hesitant, the hasty scholar and the hesitant son. Let's talk about the the, uh, hasty scholar first. Jesus has had a long day of teaching, a long day of teaching, a long day of miracles. He's done a lot of healing, and it's the end of the day, and he's tired, and he's interested in uh, getting away for a little bit for some rest. He sees the crowd, and then he says to his closest followers, let's get in this boat, let's go across the sea and for a little rest. And just as he's getting in the boat, this guy comes to him, and he's not just anybody. Verse 19 says he's a teacher of the law, as he's a scribe. He is an expert in the law of Moses and and makes a living teaching people how to obey God. And the teachers of the law in the book of Matthew are, well, they're the villains, aren't they? Frequently opposed to Jesus. And uh, he comes to him. Here's one who's interested in him, though, except he comes and he says, teacher, hmm, think about that, teacher, That is a very accurate way to describe Jesus. He's a teacher. But you might not have noticed this. I did not notice this until somebody pointed it out to me. In the Gospel of Matthew, when someone calls Jesus teacher, it's usually an indication that they don't understand who he is. So just think about it. We had some miracles last week we read, and the people came to Jesus and they said, Lord, What's the difference between coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, as opposed to coming to Jesus and saying, teacher? There's a difference, right? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Declaration, emphasis on I. Here I am to follow you, Jesus. Aren't you lucky to have me? Jesus is not lucky to have any of us. But that's the way he comes. And he says... I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you in the boat. I'll follow you across the water. I'll follow you if you want to go down to Jerusalem. I'll follow you if you want to go back to Nazareth. I'll follow you. I'll follow you to Rome. I will go wherever you want. And Jesus seems to say no. We all heard Steve Henson's announcement. If you're interested at all in serving in Awana, you can come to this meeting. If at all you want to serve, anybody, anybody, you can come. If Jesus is at the meeting, he might tell you to go home. Jesus says no. 
Or if, if he doesn't outright say no, he at least clarifies. I have no place to lay my head, and if you follow me, you won't have a place to lay your head either. In other words, the life that you're expecting with me is not the life that you're going to get. I wonder, man, if you are prepared for the itinerant sort of life that I'm going to lead. I wonder if you're prepared for the poverty of the life that, I, that, that is in following me. Or he was renting a place. He, he had Technically, he had a bed, but he's going to be on the road. And on the road, it's not going to be a comfortable life. It's going to be a life of hard beds, if there are hard beds at all, and cold floors. Hard, it's going to be a hard life. And I'm not sure this guy was prepared for that. Jesus doesn't seem to think, and frankly, think about this with me. You can understand why he might not be prepared for this. Imagine he has, what he has seen Jesus do and what he has heard Jesus preacher who has ever lived. And you should see what he can do. I mean, people with leprosy are coming to him, and people with anyone at all in Palestine who can make a request for a soft bed and a hot meal, it's going to be Jesus, right? I mean, wouldn't there be people falling all over themselves to say to him, hey, come to sweet, you can stay in, you and all your closest friends, and I'll feed you all, we'll have a feast. I mean, if there's anybody who can demand a soft bed and a hot meal, it's got to be Jesus, right? It's not going to be hard, hard, a hard life following him, right? And Jesus says, no, it's going to be a very hard life. It's going to be an uncomfortable life. 25 years ago, those who worked at the Bridger Wildlife Area compiled some of the complaints that people had about the, the area. You're supposed to go and look at the view and hike through the mountains and, and, and camp, and, and people would write comments about their experience, and they turned them in, and the rangers collected some of their favorite comments that people had about the Bridger Wildlife Area. Here's a few of them. First one. The trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. Out for a romantic stroll. Here we go. Here's one. The trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Chairlists need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. Eradicate these annoying animals. But here's the guy with the problem. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please call. And left his number. The deer will drop that right off. It'll cost a buck. Okay, number, here's the next one. Next one. Escalators. Escalators would be helpful on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. The, I, this is my favorite, I think. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. Here's the last one I'll read. There are too many rocks in the mountains. People are not looking for... 
Why is Jesus, why is following Jesus so uncomfortable? Matthew will reveal as we read the rest of the book. It's because Jesus is going to lead a contrary life. His teaching, the people he hangs out with, his life is going to be out of step with the rest of the world, the people that he meets and talks to. He's going to say things that people don't want to hear. He's going to give them uncomfortable truths. The world in which we live, Jesus is coming to represent God, to speak for him. And the people that he's speaking to, this world is tilted away from God, oriented away from him. So in this world, we should expect this, speaking truthfully, uh, doing good, serving others. It's going to be costly because we live in a contrary world. Do you feel that sting of sacrifice? When's the last time that pricked at you? You live in a contrary world. So following Jesus is a contrary life that is costly. Now, how do we face that reality? What do we need to believe or know or do in order to face that reality? Well, this passage, uh, the scripture tells us to remember, this world is not your home. This world is not your home. This is not the place for comfort. This is not the destination. This is the journey. This life is more like the airport than the beach resort. It's more like the highway than the hotel. This is not the place of our rest. Maybe Paul helps us with this a little bit when he, when he uses this imagery in Philippians 3.20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. No wonder you're tired. You have a lowly body, not a glorious body. Someday, but not now, not here. The Apostle Paul earlier in Philippians, didn't he say in chapter 1, I long to depart and be with Christ because that's better by far because this is not home and where he is, that's home. We are strangers and pilgrims, we who walk by faith, Hebrews 11 says. We walk by faith, we're strangers and pilgrims in this world looking for a better country because we're not home. Now, I know Paul is not speaking about this, but this passage does help me as I think about the election that's coming up in just a few weeks. Our citizenship is in heaven. So what does that have to do as, as we think about our role in voting? On the one hand, I say, I am keenly interested in what happens. Keenly interested in what happens in the election because one of the ways that followers of Jesus can show love for their neighbor is by voting wisely and voting well and, and uh, uh, voting um, virtuously and uprightly. And, you know, I have my chief interest, my chief interest as a voter, of course, is to speak for those who don't have a voice, namely the unborn. So I could never in good conscience vote for a candidate who wants to promote or extend or expand the right for abortion. I just could not do that. And I'm watching this election with keen interest in that regard. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this is not my place of ultimate citizenship. It's not my chief identity. 
I am grateful for the land of my birth. I give thanks to God for it. But the Savior, who is my Savior, is the Lord of all the nations. And there's a sense in which we are strangers in every country on earth. We're ambassadors in every country on earth. We're outsiders everywhere because this is not my home. And, and my joys and sorrows don't rise and fall with my preferred political candidates because this is not my home. Now we get some help from Jesus in this because he says in verse 20, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now the son of man, this is a title that Jesus uses about himself. He uses it about 30 times in the gospels. Nobody else calls him this. It's a little bit of an ambiguous phrase, son of man. It's a sneaky claim that Jesus is making here. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew he refers to himself as the Son of Man. If you trace out all the times that Jesus uses the phrase, it shows up in one of three different contexts. Either he talks about himself as the Son of Man in his mission here on earth, or Son of Man, here I am to suffer, or Son of Man, here I am in glory. There's glory for the Son of Man, those three things. Now, the Gospels call Jesus at various times the Son of Man, or sometimes it refers to him, especially John, the son of God. And we tend to think that son of man emphasizes his humanity and son of God emphasizes his deity. And actually it's the other way around. The son of man is a phrase where Jesus is very covertly claiming a tremendous amount of authority. I know this because the phrase derives from the, gospel, uh, the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel's having a vision of the end of the age, and here's the character he sees who is at the center of the end. Look, Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. There it is. Son of man. He's coming, this one who looks like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you know why Luke in Acts chapter 1 emphasized the fact that Jesus ascended into clouds and the angel said he's coming again just like that? He is, he is appealing here to Daniel 7, the clouds of heaven. I had a, f- a friend years ago who uh, used to, when he would wake up in the morning, he'd look in the sky and if it was clear and blue, he would say to himself, well, not today. Jesus isn't coming today because there's got to be clouds. If he's coming back, there's got to be clouds, except I mean, the weather can change pretty quick, right? So anyway, clouds, coming with the clouds of heaven. And clouds are a, a, a symbol of divine presence. He approached this one like a son of man. All the other creatures that Daniel had seen were strange uh, lions, bears, leopards, just weird. But there's one like a son of man. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into God's presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's this figure, this end times powerful figure who will come in glory and will have divine sovereign authority. But not here, not now, not in Matthew 8. He's the son of man with no place to lay his head. 
this is probably not a credit to my character, but I, I, this somewhat makes me think of the movie Aladdin. There's a line in that Disney cartoon. So you know that Disney's cartoon Aladdin is about uh, a genie, and his name is Genie. And Genie is talking about what it's like to have so much power, be able to do so many things, and yet live in a lamp. And what does he say? I have phenomenal cosmic power and itty-bitty living space. Right? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Philippians 2. He was in nature God, but made himself a servant, taking on the form of a servant. No wonder, no wonder there would be sacrifice because we're not home yet. We're following Jesus, the Son of Man, who has no place to lay his head. This concept, this phrase, lay his head, actually shows up again one more time in the Gospels. John uses this phrase in John 19.30 to describe the Lord Jesus and his death. Look what it says. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he laid his head, he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 8 has no place to lay his head he will not really lay his head down until he lays it down for us on the cross when he dies in our place. Come after me, Jesus says. You have no guarantee of a comfortable life. There will be sacrifices that will be involved. How does this work into your life? You don't have to follow Jesus long before the intrusion comes for your time, or your energy, or your wallet. If you have little children and you are endeavoring to honor the Lord Jesus and how you raise them, there is that necessity of sacrifice, that intrusion happens on a regular basis about every 92 seconds or so. Uh, Awana is starting in a couple weeks, and it will be time for you to sacrifice your Wednesday nights going to be harder this year because of all the things that we need to do. It's going to be more challenging, but here's this call on the way to follow Jesus. If it's been a while since you have felt the sting of sacrifice, I wonder if you're a little out of step with Jesus. Sacrifice, let's move on. We'll pick up the pace a little bit here. We're going to talk secondly about separation. Separation. Verse 21, another disciple said to him. Now, here we have this word disciple. We want, our inclination in the Gospels is for the word disciple to be very specific. It either refers to the 12, the 12 disciples, or it refers to people who are really faithful, really committed. That's not how the Gospel writers use the word disciple. The word disciple is a broad word. It refers to anybody who has any interest in Jesus at all. In fact, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're believers. In fact, what? One of the 12 was not a believer, Judas. So uh, this other person who's interested in following Jesus comes along, and he seems to understand what Jesus demands, but he's hesitant to do so, and he mentions, he cites his responsibilities as a son at home. I have to go and bury my father. Now the question is, has his dad died yet? 
So let's say this is Wednesday, they're having this discussion. Did the guy's dad die on Monday? And here's Wednesday, and the funeral's going to be Friday. And Jesus, uh, the man says to Jesus, before you get in the boat, I'll, I'll be back in a few days. i got to go bury my dad. I don't think that's what's happening here because in this culture, and still in some circles of Judaism today, it is important that you be buried on the same day that you die. So that would be strange if his dad died at 9 a.m. and he went and followed Jesus and said, I'll be right back, and goes home to bury his dad that afternoon. That would be strange. Why don't you just stay home? Stay home with your family, bury your dad, and then come, right? It's a couple hours. Seems to be that this man is saying, I have my father. I'm still responsible for him as an honorable and faithful son. I'm going to be with him and take care of him until he dies. And then I'll bury him and then I'll come and follow him. And you would think that Jesus would admire this man's family values, but he does not. I think he sees through this that this man is using his family responsibilities as an excuse. That's why very harshly he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physical dead, physically dead. You come and follow me. Here's this call to absolute loyalty to Jesus, and we are familiar with it. In Matthew 10, we're going to get to this in a few weeks. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Absolute loyalty. Here's this call. How do we do this? We remember Jesus is worthy of your highest devotion. Jesus is worthy of your highest devotion. This is, it's rare to find someone who doesn't struggle here in some way with this truth. Especially, especially if you have a son or daughter who's not a follower of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon used to write about this. I've told you this before. It's hard to imagine a better example. But Charles Spurgeon, when he was a little boy, his father was a pastor. And on Sunday nights, his father would go out and preach evangelistic meetings or preach at various churches and often late nights. So Mrs. Spurgeon would stay home with uh, Charles Spurgeon's mother, would stay home with the children. And on Sunday nights, she would read with them the Bible or she'd read some devotional literature. And then she would pray with and for her children. And on a couple of occasions at least, this is how she prayed. Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. So, someday, for some of us who are members of this congregation, this will be the reality. The Lord Jesus will face your son, your daughter, and say to that person, depart from me. I never knew you, you evildoer. And in that moment, you will be on the side of the Lord Jesus. And your child... Such a pain. Your religious nutcaseness. It's a pain. Can can I just remind you before we move on briefly here... The Lord Jesus, here is this demand that he sets down that he be first and first only in your heart. That he rules centrally in your life. If you put someone else there in that preferred position, 
If you put your spouse there, if you put your son there, if you put your grandchildren there, if you put somebody else in that position, you will not love them well. You think this is how to love someone. I'm going to put them first in my heart. You think that, but you won't love them well. Actually, you will crush them because they will not be able to bear the weight of your expectations and your hopes. The only person who is sufficient to be at the center of your life is the Lord Jesus. And anyone else that you put there, you will crush them. You will hurt them. Especially if it's you. Separation. It's not an elegant word, but it works in this passage. Jesus, he may take you to some frightening places. There's some unusual language here. The disciples get in the boat and they follow Jesus and suddenly a furious storm comes. And the text says it came up. That is, in the ancient language, an earthquake word. There's three earthquakes in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus dies on the cross, when he rises from the dead, and here in this storm that's come up. And then Jesus stands up and he rebukes the storm. That word rebuke is the same word that's used for how he casts out demons. This is a storm with cosmic significance. The waves are high. They're over the boat. So that while they're sailing, they go down in the trough. And the waves are way up above them. And then they come up and go down and up and down. And Jesus is sleeping. He must have been really worn out. Really worn out. This is supposed to make you think of Jonah. Jonah, the sleeping prophet, who's at the bottom of the boat uh, during a terrible storm. So Jonah is the prophet sleeping in a storm when he's running from God. Jesus is the prophet sleeping in the boat who has obeyed God. At the end of the Jonah story, or in the middle, actually, of the Jonah story, when Jonah's thrown into the water, there's calm. God brings that about. Who brings about the calm here in this story? Jesus does. Jesus is both the prophet and the controller of the winds and the waves. You're also supposed to think about the passage that we read this morning from Psalm 104. God is the one who calls out the waves. God is the one who commands the wind. God is the one who tells the waters where to go. And Jesus stands up in the boat and tells the water what to do. And the disciples say, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Only God can do what he just did. Who, who in the world is this? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. We're dying. Um, it seems like Matthew here is using language that everyone who's a follower of Jesus uses. In fact, this is how you become a Christian. You come and you say, Lord, save Save us, Lord. Lord, save us. We are dying. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord. Save us. If you don't save us, we are lost. Save us, Lord. They're talking about the water. And Jesus gets up and rebukes them. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And if I were a disciple at this point in time, I would be saying to him, Jesus, that's an excellent point. Can we talk about it later? Do something about the storm. He calls them little faiths. That's, it's one word. You little faiths. This is like John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, right? This is a great last name. This is the little faith family out on the on, uh, sailing for the day. There's Peter little faith and John little faith and James little faith and Andrew little faith. Uh, you little faiths. 
Why are you afraid? He rebukes the storm and there's great calm. There had been, so it's the same word, furious storm, completely calm. Same, it's not in English, but in, in the original, it's the same word. Great storm, great calm. Now, our temptation at this point in time is to read this story as if, as if here's the application, Jesus will deliver you from your storms. It's a great temptation. It will preach. I don't think that's what this passage is about, chiefly because sometimes Jesus doesn't deliver people from storms. Sometimes he takes them in and through storms. And I also don't think that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not about how you can be safe from your storms. The point of this passage is that Jesus is the master of the storms. He has the authority over them. He rules over them. And how do you endure? How do you endure? Jesus is that you have the faith that he calls here for that recognizes that Jesus is equal to the scare. There's no guarantee in this passage that there will be no storms. And when they come, it doesn't mean he's powerless. It doesn't mean that you have too little faith if you're in the midst of a storm. What I appreciate about this story, this account, is that the disciples didn't wake up Jesus and he did not say to them, hey, you little faiths, leave me alone. When you muster up some more faith, then come and ask me and then I'll help you. He listens to little faiths. That's good news. He is fully competent to either silence storms or use storms for his purposes. It doesn't matter what he wants to do. He can do it because he is the master of every storm. Do you believe that's true? I mean, do you really believe that that is true? If you do, you're on the way. Maybe slowly. Maybe inconsistently, maybe like an inebriated turtle, but you are on the way following Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we come before you, we, your little faiths, we who are inconsistent, we who are sometimes joyless, we who are erratic in how we follow you, we who are often afraid. We come before you this morning in the wake of this story, this account, knowing that this is how Jesus calls us to follow him on this uncomfortable way and on this uh, separated way and on this sometimes frightening way. Oh, Lord, we have, we have an eminent record of failure. So we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus and his great power. Because of who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you have said and what you have done, we do pray that you would also uphold us as we seek to follow you faithfully. You laid your head down on the cross in our place for us. How shall we not now follow you faithfully? 
You have commanded us, and we pray that you would equip us to do what you have commanded. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.